You're listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast, episode 62. And joining me for the intro is Frank Tavares, and you'll recognize his voice from a recent story he did on Pluto. So Frank, tell us a little bit about that. Hey, sure, Matt. So basically, during the New Horizons flyby mission in 2015, uh, we got some great imagery of this really strange terrain on Pluto. Uh, We found essentially these giant ice formations that look like giant uh, spikes or ridges um, coming Mm -hmm. up in high elevations. Um, And the official name for it is bladed terrain because it kind of looks like, you know, knife blades sticking up. You know, maybe if you open your kitchen drawer and the blades were all pointed up, it would look like that. So the big mystery was we didn't really know how these things got there. But recently, a science team at Ames led a a research investigation that found that these things are actually made out of methane ice uh, and found out the whole history of of how these things came to be. And it actually has taught us a lot about Pluto's own climate and geological history and how it came to be the the object that it is today. Cool. And so you can catch that story on NASA.gov. There's also a couple videos that they have uh, up on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Um, Obviously, there's the audio version that Frank recorded on the podcast. Um, but switching over to today, our guest is Vade Chariath. Uh, Vade is a research scientist and lead for the Laboratory for Advanced Sensing at NASA Ames. And Frank, I believe you heard Vade speak at a couple of events late recently? Yeah, I, I listened to a talk that he gave recently um, announcing the um, start of his new NemoNet project that he's a part of. Uh, and essentially, this is focusing on mapping out coral here on Earth. The imagery was amazing, but but re- really struck out from, for me was when uh, Vade said, that there's only one species on Earth that can be seen from outer space, and that's coral. And we're killing it at an incredibly high rate. And that really gave me such a sense of what the stakes are for understanding coral and what we're doing to it. Uh, So, like, if aliens were out there doing all the same stuff we are to try and look for life in the universe, what they would be able to see from Earth, from outer space, would be coral, not humans. Um, And that's a form of life that's going extinct. Um, So, yeah, I mean, Vade's a really incredible scientist um, doing really important work and actually even recently won the Ames Early Career Research Award here here at um, NASA Center in Silicon Valley. Excellent. So before we jump on in, I just want to do a couple quick reminders. You can call us for folks listening. That's at 650-604-1400. You can leave a message or a question for the podcast. We're also using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley if you prefer digital. Uh, You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and through a normal RSS feed that works with nearly all podcast apps. And recently, we're starting to add an audio version to YouTube as well that Frank has actually been working <laughs> on. Um, but, you know, if you like what you hear, do us a favor and leave us a review that really helps others to find the podcast. And of course, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out This Week at NASA, NASA Casts, and in Houston, we have a podcast. But for now, now, let's listen to our conversation with Vade Chariath. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you end up in Silicon Valley? How did you end up at NASA to begin with? Sure. So this was a very concerted effort since I was about five years old. You were determined. <laughs> determined. Five-year-old Vade was like, I'm going to get and a job I there. I knew I wanted to work at NASA. I saw the Mars rover landing coming in. This was Sojourner okay. um, in 99. And we saw the images coming in live at, at JPL in the open house. And I just knew then and there that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> really? So, so um, then was that like 
your whole like, like high school, college was all centrally focused on this is where I'm going to be? It was. I actually um, created a master plan to become an astronaut. So <laughs> when I was around seven, uh, I, I decided to study astrophysics and particle physics and then go to school in Russia and then try to come back to the United States to do um, school at Stanford. So all those things actually worked out, fortunately, <laughs> but there were some complications well, along the way. This was like as a seven-year-old? Is that what yeah, yeah, I was a <laughs> very determined seven-year-old. So I, I got into amateur astronomy. I started doing a lot okay. of um, backyard astronomy. And then at around the time, there were a lot of exoplanets being detected using okay. this transit method that uh, uh -huh. actually the Kepler project uses. So I wanted to be the first um, kid on the block to try to find an exoplanet using that transit method, but with amateur equipment. Okay. So I went to some telescope companies uh, in the area in Los Angeles and I begged and pleaded to get a larger telescope. I was going to say, I'm imagining your parents thinking like, really, we're going to buy a $10,000 telescope yeah, or something? Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> so <laughs> like, that's, that's why it was a lot, of, a lot of science fairs. And then I, had a, I got a three-inch telescope um, that we saved up for. And then... And then I tried to go to these telescope companies and said, hey, you know, if, if, if we were able to make this discovery, it would be on your instruments. So wouldn't, wouldn't it be a great idea if you were to kind of sponsor me as a high school student? Wow, that's so, hilarious. So we got two of them in a, in a competition, and then one of them finally gave us a nice instrument. And I did my, I had a mentor at USC, and I tried to go out um, to Mount Pinos, north of L.A., and I spent about a year there just taking observations and I had to build my own camera system and eventually um, discovered a planet. So that was really one of the first. It was really large. So <laughs> by today's standards, it was an easy detection. But um, at the time, it was the first detection on an amateur instrument. And that was like college or that was like that high, was, school? Uh, high school? So really? Then so then I, where did you end up going to school? What were you studying? How did you do that? So I, I, as part of that project, I got to go to the International Science Fair. And okay. one of the awards you get when you win at the top places is a lunch with astronauts. So I got to meet uh, Pinky Nelson okay. <laughs> and give him my master plan and say, hey, this, you know, I've been meaning to like, meet an astronaut one day. So what do you think of this idea? Like, I want, to, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go potentially study in Russia to learn Russian and learn physics. And he said, that's a great idea. It's, it's, <laughs> so I kind of just, I went with that and I uh, graduated from high school early and then went to Moscow State University. Really? For four and a half years. So how, how, how's your Russian by now? Did you figure it out? <laughs> now, it's, now it's great because four and a half years of intensive education in Russian will, will do that to you. Well, that's also, that, that's very smart just for the sake of, you know, NASA, one of the cool things is like we don't have to do this alone. Um, we have like international partners, we have private partners, and obviously teaming up with Russia on like the space station and things is a crucial part of what NASA does. Absolutely. And I, I've always admired uh, the ability for immigrants coming to the United States to speak English fluently um, and almost natively. We almost expect it of everybody. Yeah. But yet, when our astronauts speak Russian, uh, no offense to <laughs> our <laughs> astronauts, they've, you know, the accents are wrong, the cases are wrong, and yeah. Russian is a language that's so rich and mm -hmm. um, exacting. You really have to, to get it right to come across correctly. So. I, know, I always think of like college is hard enough, <laughs> especially a master's program. It's hard enough in your own language. So huge props to anybody who can do it, like go do study in the 
in a different language, like the content's already hard enough, but then with the language barrier, man, that's rough. Yeah, I realized that the first year it was <laughs> I bit off more than I could chew, but um, after a couple of years and intensive training, uh, it got better. But people do this all the time when they come to the United States and they from a different country, and they just have to not only learn the language but the academic system, um, how things get done, how research is done. Yeah. So it's a it's a mind shift for sure, but. Yeah, incredibly useful. It, it gets mentally exhausting, you know, switching between the languages and, and like, you know, but it's it's an exercise and it stretches you. So. Um, so then, like, were you studying like astrophysics at that point? And then did you la- land that into like a master's program later on back back here? Or how did that work? Sure. So my plan was to to finish my bachelor's degree or master's degree equivalent in Russia and then come here for graduate school. OK. Um, this also is partly motivated by financial means because <laughs> yes. um, the United States universities are very expensive. And my scholarship I got would cover one year of, a, of an Ivy League school here, but it would okay. cover my entire education in Russia. All right. Um, so I went with that option, <laughs> saved a Smart. lot of funds, and um, and then I had to actually leave Russia early um, due to an uptick in in a lot of violent attacks, neo-Nazi attacks. Oh wow! So I got attacked a few times, and then I just said, "This isn't. It's not worth spending the last couple months here." Um, so I applied to Stanford as a transfer student and said, you know, my, my goal was to apply here as a graduate student, but I'm in this <laughs> predicament. Um, and they actually, they took me as a transfer student and gave me a path to a PhD and, and full funding. So that was really tremendous. But, but I, I spent four and a half years uh, in Moscow and then in 2009 uh, transferred to Stanford to finish my bachelor's in physics with the concentration in astrophysics. And then I went on to but so you basically also grew up in like in LA, California. Yes. <laughs> so now you went to the Northern California, so in the Bay Area. So you basically spent most of your time over here. Yes, and I, I really like the Bay Area. And then so coming to NASA, was it like an internship, a contractor thing? How did you end up making that that leap on over? Sure. So I I had started graduate school at Stanford after finishing my undergrad, and I started doing picking up the research I started when actually I was in high school and looking um, with amateur telescopes again. I went back to the same companies, and I said, "Hey, <laughs> I'm back again. I need a larger <laughs> instrument." Remember me? Um, now I speak Russian. <laughs> so it was actually really generous because I drove down in this this very um, questionable looking van, and I, I you know I made my presentation and said, "I'm I'm interested in doing high resolution imaging." through the Earth's atmosphere, one of the issues we have looking mm-hmm. at objects in space is that the atmosphere blurs everything. Yeah. And the stars twinkle for that reason. So I was developing a technique uh, at the time called atmospheric lensing that would use the atmosphere as a lens to try to look at objects at high resolution. But I needed big telescopes to do it, and mm-hmm. big telescope time costs a lot of money. Yeah. So <laughs> my graduate advisor um, said, sure, go for it. And so I went and I got, I, actually, it was very successful. I came back with, with three 20-inch telescopes. Um, and we set them up on our department building, and I started just testing this out again. And it was um, an image of the sun, actually, that got me an invitation to Ames to give a talk to a, a, a group interested here. Mm-hmm. Um, I had finally gotten to the theoretical limit of the telescope's resolution, so effectively okay. imaging through the atmosphere's disturbances. Uh, very well, and I did image the Venus transit in 2012. Oh wow! And so I presented that work here and. It was the algorithm was still very you know nascent at the time, so I didn't really understand why so many things were working <laughs> the way they were. But um, we had we had essentially achieved the result of of an equivalent of a space instrument um, from oh, a very really? small ground-based instrument. And so it was at that talk that I gave that at the, um, the center director at the time and a lot of other scientists said, you know, 
have you considered hey. <laughs> working with us and, and coming here as an intern? So I was brought in as, a, as an intern, and um, now I'm a civil servant here. And did, it, did it get pulled into the, they call it the Pathways Program, was it that, or whatever its predecessor was? Uh, at the time, it was, it was USRA. Um, okay. And then it went into a Pathways uh, mm-hmm. Fellowship in 2013, so a year after that. Oh, cool. And so where, where are you sitting right now? What, what kind of stuff are you working on? So now I got, I got pulled over to the blue side. <laughs> I had first looked at, at uh, celestial objects and through the Earth's atmosphere, and I started imaging satellites and perhaps things that um, mm-hmm. I should not have been imaging at high resolution. <laughs> uh, and so uh, one of my colleagues, um, actually the partner of one of my colleagues in marine biology says, have you looked at the ocean surface and doing this through okay. ocean waves? Because right now we'd have no way of looking through... Uh, the refractive distortions coming from the surface of water. So I said, no, I haven't done that. But actually, <laughs> that, that sounds like a much easier problem to do than the atmosphere because it's, it's, uh, it's just one surface that causes this distortion. So um, I put together a project. I'd been working a lot with UAVs at the time, uh, small okay. unmanned aerial vehicles or drones. And so we deployed my technique on a coral reef to look through the ocean surface, and it worked remarkably well. And so I got completely um, shifted to looking <laughs> Immersed through uh, the air-water interface and, and trying to figure out how to look through at the ocean. I was really surprised to learn that we've mapped more of Mars and the Moon combined than we have of our own ocean floor, which is startling because no one lives on those places. <laughs> so, uh, But our, our, our life is really dependent upon the ocean. So yeah. it became um, my mentors here at, at NASA Ames really convinced me that my place was in earth science and to try to okay. develop instruments to, to figure out how to protect our spaceship first <laughs> and then go off and yeah. try to do something outside of, of space. So uh, that's how I got pulled over into to earth science. Well, that obvi- I mean, then there's not an obvious like parallel to then as we look at trying to find exoplanets or even, you know, celestial bodies in our own solar system, you know, like especially we mentioned before starting talking about like Europa or Enceladus or some of these places that have, you know, water or have liquid water, even underneath it, a lot of ice. I mean, there's just parallels mm-hmm. of uh, how we can, what we've learned looking at our own planet can be tweaked to look at other planets as well. Absolutely. And a lot of the technologies we develop for space science come out of Earth science instruments and testing and validating them on, frankly, the coolest planet that we know of, the only one that has life, the only one yeah. that has a huge diversity of life and multiple environments. So it's kind of as, as I as I looked up as uh, uh, to do space science, I realized I'm sitting on, on a gold mine already. <laughs> you know, yeah. I found a planet that has oxygen, that has large organisms, um, and that has incredible diversity. And so... Uh, I think I could I could spend the rest of my life studying planet Earth and not get bored. <laughs> yeah. And so you were talking about like the lensing and looking through the through liquid. Is that also kind of like like visual spectrum kind of stuff? Because I don't know if you're looking through the ocean at a certain point, the light just doesn't get down that far. So are, were you working on that stuff as well? Of like, or how do you correct that or, or look further than what our sure light so goes? The, I guess. The ocean causes a lot of problems <laughs> for how we view things. Um, humans have, have been really good at exploiting electromagnetic spectrum since we first discovered it and trying to mm-hmm. figure out all the different frequency regimes we could look at. But when, when light interacts with water, um, you're really stuck with just a few frequencies that transmit. And they okay. happen to just be the optical 
frequencies that we naturally see. So um, blue light in clear tropical waters is, has a very deep penetration depth. It's usually around 100 meters before it's mostly attenuated. Beneath okay. that, it's dark. Uh, it's, once you get, you're not seeing anything after that. Right. <laughs> Even under the best circumstances in the open ocean, past 100 meters, 300 meters, you're out of what we call the photic zone, which is where visible light penetrates. Okay. And then it's just dark. And what's interesting is the ocean's average depth is four kilometers. So <laughs> most of our understanding of the ocean is of this tiny little layer at the top. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's not actually where, you know, all the life may be. It may be in different areas. So one problem is optical absorption. Uh, the okay. second problem then comes from just the interface of air and water at the surface. And that has a, there's a refractive index jump between the two, which means that light going across that boundary will get bent. Okay. And, and I'm sure like bubbles and like air pockets or other yeah we'll, things we'll call those there. higher order <laughs> defects or you <laughs> know floating some other things <laughs> but for the the large part if you're trying to look at a target underwater and you can see this at, at a swimming pool and you look down at your friend underwater uh, you see the blurring effect of waves Absolutely. first and then the second effect you'll see is as he gets deeper there's less and less color that you see in the person okay um, you start just seeing one wavelength coming through and that's because of the absorption of water molecules of certain frequencies and then the scattering of those frequencies. Okay. So the technology I had to develop had to address two issues. One was this distortion from ocean waves, and the second is this incredible absorption with depth. And that's a fundamental okay. physical limit we have on, on how much you can see. So the algorithm I developed fluid lensing exploits something called caustics. Okay. When you look at a pool on a sunny day, um, you'll see at the bottom of the pool these dancing bright bands of light. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this this really intrigued me. <laughs> I did a lot of research into how those were formed, and this really formed the basis of the, the algorithm that eventually we ended okay. up using as part of this instrument. So these caustics get formed because light gets essentially magnified almost like, from like, like, a wave. Almost like, like a magnifying glass or like those pyramids, those glass pyramids or prisms, mm -hmm. when it looks and it kind of like can isolate to have a... A dot. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's uh, it's actually a question that has intrigued people for a long time. Uh, Arian in 1894, I believe, first asked this question, you know, what are these bright bands of light and how bright do they get? Oh, wow. um, if you figured out the, the properties of that band of light, you actually could figure out a lot about what the ocean surface is doing because you know what shape it has. Um, just like if you had a magnifying glass and you were to focus the light, you'd notice, okay, this is a dot of high intensity, um, enough to fry something, and you yeah. know, it comes from this lens shape. So I started off trying to do this experimentally. It was very difficult because it's a complicated system and it moves. Finally, we, <laughs> we on the supercomputer here at Ames, we just simulated the entire um, really? structure. So we, we, if you look at a Pixar film or at some other computer graphics-generated film, you'll notice that light gets... Um, uh, they can simulate the interactions of light very accurately. And okay. so there's a lot of advanced rendering techniques we have to do that uh, on a supercomputer. So I set up basically a swimming pool in the supercomputer, and we tried to create ocean waves and then see what the patterns of light were. And sure enough, caustics emerged, and we see these bright bands oh. going around. And then if you look at the intensity of those caustics, you notice that they're actually, this is something no one has ever yeah. figured out before, um, they can be almost 100 times as bright as sunlight above the water. Really? And this is a really interesting result because you, it means that everything that evolved underwater, <laughs> yeah. first of all, has figured out a way to deal with brands of light hitting them that are a hundred times the intensity of normal sunlight. Of normal sunlight. Um, that's something that, you know, terrestrial organisms may not have to evolve with, but certainly fish with very sensitive eyes somehow manage to 
cope with this incredible and intensity and not go blind, right? <laughs> yes. So um, I have a theory that, that perhaps uh, some of our, our suntan response underwater, uh, I've noticed just diving a lot, you get tanned very quickly, even yeah. though you're not above the surface. I guess that uh, makes sense. So it's all, like you're in a magnifying glass. You're in a magnifying glass. <laughs> and although the average intensity may be much lower, um, mm-hmm. the instantaneous intensity from one of these bands hitting you can be incredibly high. And so um, a lot of organisms respond to that using either a skin pigmentation change or some other feature. So that was the first main result, was that these caustics mm-hmm. are, are bright, and uh, when they form, the traditional concept of optical absorption with depth goes away because you have now this bright band of light that can penetrate much, much deeper than just the normal sunlight that's coming through a diffuse surface. So that was the first um, <laughs> part of this puzzle. Yeah. And then the second was trying to figure out how to tie these bands to the surface of the ocean or the surface of a pool and okay. figuring out what the, um, the lenses are, essentially. Yeah. So if you look down at a pool and you see this caustic band, you'll also notice that that wave that's causing that band to form is acting like a magnifying glass and it magnifies mm-hmm. whatever objects is beneath the surface. So essentially, I had to teach a computer to find those magnifying events um, when they went over an object and they, they magnified it many, many times higher than even the natural sensor could see. Yeah. Uh, and then also tell the algorithm to track those caustics so that it wasn't just magnifying the object, but it was lighting it up with a bright band of, of sunlight. And so those two together allow you to um, create something called a flu lensing algorithm, which is what I developed to image not only at high resolution, so to use the ocean surface as a magnifying lens or a telescope essentially between you and whatever object is imaging it from above the surface. And then also as a scanning lighting system, we have Mm -hmm. these bright bands going across them and they will light up the target instantaneously. So you can fix um, these two issues we have with ocean remote sensing, the optical absorption of light uh, through these caustic bands. And then the second is the refractive distortions actually end up helping you because they act like little lenslets that you can magnify the target. So it only works under you know certain conditions, yeah. <laughs> and you can't do this exactly globally. Um, but for shallow marine systems, this has really been a game changer. We can now look at a coral reef from an aircraft at um, a resolution of half a centimeter or less in three oh, dimensions. Wow. So we understand how these these ecosystems look for the first time. Um, we've been able to map uh, huge areas of, of islands you're, in the Pacific. You're not just reliant on divers going down or taking photos. You can like whether it's a drone or an airplane, you can mm-hmm. map it so much faster and understand right. it so much more. <laughs> that comes with a whole bunch of other problems that yeah. you have these huge data sets. But for the first time, you have a map, uh, a 3D mm-hmm. map of what's going on under the surface. And these coral reef ecosystems have a biodiversity that's just above anything else we know on Earth. Um, and if you go to the uh, Amazon rainforest, the average number of species per square or cubic meter is around 100 times less than the same number in a coral reef system. So these systems are not just pretty, but they also support a huge amount of biodiversity in the oceans. They shelter um, island systems from tsunami events and storm surge events. They perform this natural barrier and they support a lot of of human <laughs> humans essentially with a food source um, a very steady food source that supports fisheries so we're just understanding now for the first this time is the beginning stages right <laughs> what they look like and then before we, we really had to look with diver data um, to, to understand things at this spatial scale and corals right now are, are changing drastically because the ocean is changing a lot of properties at once yeah the temperature is changing of the ocean surface. Um, the salinity of a lot of places is changing. But most importantly, the acidity of the ocean is changing. As we 
pump out a lot of carbon dioxide, um, that carbon dioxide gets absorbed and fixed by the ocean directly. Mm -hmm. um, almost 80% of the carbon dioxide we produce goes into the ocean. And then as it goes into the ocean, it's changing the acidity or the pH of the ocean. And so if you're a coral reef and you're made of calcium carbonate skeleton, um, your whole structure, your skeleton is based upon having a certain acidity. And if that acidity changes, it starts dissolving. So a lot of corals are undergoing bleaching events or mm -hmm. they're essentially dying off uh, and they are losing the structure that is so crucial to supporting fisheries in those areas as well as providing a natural barrier to storm events. And it's interesting, like some of the, you, know, you talk about especially marine life, but as you start looking at that biodiversity or even in some like extreme situations or e even where you know, they've evolved or, or figured out how to survive with this magnified light on them, um, of how then that can correlate to just being shocked at how life can survive in some of the most crazy extreme conditions. And then what does that mean? Like for us understanding these oceans, understanding how things are surviving under these crazy conditions, what does that mean when we're looking on Mars, when we're looking in Europa, when we're looking, you know, outside of our solar system, when, you know, when we can get a better look at mm -hmm. some of the planets that Kepler has found. Um, that understanding, then we kind of, we know, hey, life has existed in this way under these circumstances here on Earth, you know, what does that mean? And like maybe some places that you typically rule out, you don't have to rule out or you really don't know. Um, Absolutely. And it's, I guess to me it's very strange because working at NASA, one of our main goals is to, to find life. You know, I like to think that we're the Star Absolutely. Trek of all the agencies. Um, but really the only defining trait of humanity thus far is the mass extinction of life on Earth. We're very wow. good at killing things off, um, yeah. large amounts of species. And it's been, it's just, it's baffling to me that we are, we are so interested in finding new life forms when we're sitting on a trillion of whole them bunch. and we're losing them at yeah. an unprecedented rate. So looking at the fluid lensing, looking at, you know, even ha how you applied that to looking through the atmosphere, what do you see is what's the next step? What's the next phase? What are you looking at five years from now from all the research and stuff that you've done? Where do you hope that it's going or where do you see it, it moving? So my job now is really just to invent new instruments and then get them in the hands of the science community to use them to understand either this coral ecosystem or different types of ecosystems. So my main goal right now is in getting this technology mature enough to fly on a spacecraft. NASA's unique vantage point in space helps us understand the planet like no one else can. And so right now we've been testing them on drones and flying around different coral reef systems, producing very large data sets and really maturing the technology to show not only does this produce a very high resolution result, but it tells you something very important about this ecosystem. It tells you the breakdown of, of the different species or the abundance of different types of morphologies. And that's a key science question that will motivate a satellite instrument. So I'm looking at CubeSats, I'd like to have a nice fleet of CubeSats that's doing nice. this around our planet. We still have not mapped all the corals at, at this resolution. We've probably mapped one ten thousandth of the, the entire coral surface of the Earth with this technique. And it's, it's a hard problem. I mean, surveying the entire planet at half a centimeter resolution, uh, and just the <laughs> coral reefs alone, is, is a yeah. very large amount of data. And so um, the other development we have going on right now is a lot of machine learning tools to take in all that data and just have a human train a small portion of it to understand how to classify all of it. And we've been very successful in using the, the centimeter scale data in particular to assess the percent cover of a coral reef with very little error. We're now down to about 5% error. Before it was around 30% error. And so 
just that metric alone <laughs> will help us understand how these systems are changing with a changing climate, um, what, how our impacts in certain environments are affecting the ecosystem before it becomes too late. So, for example, if we start um, dredging or, or dumping a lot of pollutants in one area, yeah. we can see that change you know, on a weekly time scale rather than our current sensors, which have very low resolution, so they only see them after it's too late and the entire coral has bleached. So the yearly time scales. So. Well, it, it, it's fascinating as you see the entire tapestry of what NASA does of looking at the stars and having your algorithms moving into looking at the ocean and using a supercomputer to then create new instruments that'll go on small sats or whether it's small missions, large missions. Uh, it's just like it's everything that they do kind of like is touching it in one way or another. So for folks who are listening who want to learn more about some of the cool stuff that you're working on, any direct questions for Vade, we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. We're on Twitter at NASA Ames. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me.